for me. I opened it up and to my chagrin, I got nothing deleted from her list of friends. She said I was cheating because of comments on my page. Another girl, thankfully I didn't have an exchange. Didn't know what to do, so I tried to write a song. But no one cared, so instead I wrote the song. I got dumped on my face and even sat aside. She took me out of her job and deleted my page. I want to die. Dear drama, I'm in need of some advice. I'm getting a little annoyed. I don't need this page and all my virtual friends. Won't answer your email or take your request. Don't care about your bulletins, don't care about your spots. Things are dumping me, I think it's time to move along. I got dumped on my screen, and maybe sat inside. Stick me out of her job and delete my page, I wanna die. Listening to CITR Radio, FM 102, Cable 102, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and the Nardwar de Human Serviette Radio Show. You just heard there brand new from Mr. Plow from Apocalypse Plow MySpace. And this is Mr. Plow's brand new CD, as I mentioned, with Gene Hoagland of the band Death. And strapping young lad on drums, plus a whole bunch of assorted other personalities, such as Norwood from Fishbone, a couple guys from Guar, and of course, members of the Three Tars, and many other great people, like, for instance, Mike Gittens, who puts on gigs in the horse capital of British Columbia, Canada, Mike Gittens. So that was Mr. Plow's Apocalypse Plow CD and the track MySpace in stores very soon or now, Mr. Plow. And today on the Nerdwadi Human Serviette Radio Show, an interview with From the Jam, who are playing tomorrow night at Richards on Richards in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. That's From the Jam featuring Rick Buckler and Bruce Foxton from the Jam. That's coming up a bit later on the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show today on CITR FM 102, Cable 102, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. But right now, joining me in the studio, who are you? Please, hello, hello, are you there? Hello, I am here, yes, I am Michael Scholar Jr. Uh, Who are you, please? Could you explain? Well, I'm the artistic producer of November Theatre, and I play the devil in The Black Rider, a a, a rock opera by Tom Waits and Willie Mess Burroughs that we're doing over at the Arts Club Theatre until February 9th. And, Michael, what exactly is The Black Rider? Can you give some background on it? Because it's not that straightforward, is it? No, it's, it's it's a very... And that's what makes it so excellent. That's what makes it what it is. It's this really weird take on a very simple folk story. There's an old folk story, German folk story about hunting and magic bullets and magic and uh, and it was turned into an opera in the 18th century and then Tom Waits and William S. Burroughs and this great avant-garde theatre director in 1990, they retackled the folk story and they created the Black 
Rider. And that production toured across the world in German. And then we did the world English premiere of that rock opera in Edmonton in 1998. But it wasn't until 1993 that Tom Waits released a record, The Black Rider? What happened there? Well, you know, they write it in 1990. They perform the show. Tom Waits didn't actually perform in the show. He just composed the music and wrote the lyrics, right? And so it took him a couple years to record the tracks himself and do his own versions of the song. Some of the CD is uh, his demos that he used for the, the, the actors and the, and the theater company in Germany. And then some of them are his reinterpretations a few years later in a recording studio in L.A. And that's the CD that I'm holding right now. That CD, that very CD in your hand is the CD I am talking about. The CD that you are talking about is from 1993, but something is happening right now. Yeah. I was talking about From the Jam, who are playing tomorrow night in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, Richard and Richards. But you, too, are performing tomorrow night and tonight. Tonight. And for a whole bunch of time, and you have been performing for a couple weeks. Yeah, we, we opened January 16th, and we run till February 9th as part of the Push Festival and as part of the Arts Club Theatre season. And so it's a, it's, it's a really dark, expressionist, stylized, bizarre um, magic tale, a, a musical fable, if you will. And, and it's getting a lot of different kind of responses. I mean, it's, a, it's very popular. We're selling out houses, and the reviews have been fantastic. But we're getting a, a lot of young people, a lot of rock and rollers, to come to the theater. And they're, they're hooting and hollering and whistling and uh, having a good time. And some of the old theater crowd are, are seeing something new and exciting that kind of reminds them of Kurt Weill or Brecht. It's, it's really unique. Is it hard to get approval from Tom Waits? Like, here you are doing the Black Rider. How hard is it to get approval from Tom Waits? It's, it's, it's very hard. In fact, Tom Waits is a control freak, as you may or may not know. He often sues people who use his materials without permission or even who imitate his voice. Uh, so when we applied for the rights in 98, uh, they were... You know, a rigorous screening process to make sure that we were a legitimate company. and that A we rigorous were... screening process. Yeah, I had to send them a little stool sample, and they made sure that I, I had the right DNA. But uh, <laughs> a few years later, actually, um, Tom Waits started to restrict the rights at all. No one was allowed to pr- produce uh, the Black Rider anywhere in the world in any language except for the original director, Robert Wilson. But we were the only other company besides Robert Wilson who were even allowed to perform it because Tom Waits loved what we did with it. We sent him the DVD. We sent him... Uh, our, our press and 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 they they even asked us where did you come up with this and how come you did that and uh, it was it was did wonderful. you actually talk to Mr. Waits has he seen the performance well he saw the the performance on DVD because we re- recorded it for our archival purposes but his wife called me and I'm in, I'm in close contact with his wife and his. His uh, wife being... Kathleen Brennan, co-collaborator, co-writer. important in her own right. Very important. She gets all the writing credits, uh, half the writing credits on all of his albums since 1980. So she she influenced that whole era of the Island Years alternative stuff where he departed from the the jazzy, bluesy stuff he was doing in the 70s. And he credits her with uh, kind of opening up her mind, his mind in that way. And and she even gets a writing credit on on his stuff today. So how hard was it to get the actual approval. Well, How long did it take to get the approval? It took me a year to track down the rights, actually. The first time it wasn't that hard in 98, once we actually found the right people, I had to find Tom's agent, and then eventually they said, oh, we don't have the rights. They're, Robert Wilson has them. I tracked down Robert Wilson in Paris, and eventually he gave me the rights. So we performed it for the first couple of years. Just out of pure luck, we got the world English rights because no one in North America had heard of the show and no one had been wanting to do it in English. It had been done 30 times in seven different languages all across Europe. 
Europe, and Tom Waits even called it the underground cats of Europe because everyone was doing it at, at all uh, all the time. Is and that on your poster to help market it? No, the underground cats of of uh, Europe. No, no, that doesn't really help. But uh, that's what he calls it. And so we we got the rights for the first couple of years, and it was fine and it was easy. But when he clamped down in around 2004, 2003, because he didn't like what he was seeing out there, he'd seen some German productions or French productions, and because Robert Wilson was doing his own English production starring Marianne Faithful and in the role of the devil. Uh, How does he see these things? Does he send spies out, or does he actually attend them incognito? I think he did attend a few. I think, you know, he was traveling around Europe, and he's like, hey, my show's playing. I should go check it out. And he goes, checks it out, and he's like, oh, what the fuck are they doing? They're going to close down. Am I allowed to say fuck on CITR? The Pinch Express are those of Michael Scholar <laughs> from The Black Rider. <laughs> Playing tonight at the Arts Club Lounge on Granville Island, right? Yes, yes. That's and only it. Michael Scholar. Only so me. Yeah. Please tune out if you're easily offended. Sorry about that. Um, I, I think he was seeing shows, and he did see our production when we when we needed to get the rights in 2004 for our tour across Western Canada. Uh, the, the rights all of a sudden weren't automatically given to us, and that's when we had to send him our materials, send him our DVD, our reviews, and all this stuff that he... He looked at it and was amazed, evidently. He called me, he wrote me a letter of recommendation, or Kathleen called me, I should say, and I heard him in the background going, and tell him this, tell him we like that. And Kathleen was beside herself, wondering even where we had gotten the script, where we'd gotten our ideas for the staging, because it, it maintained the large-scale production, the ideas from that large-scale production, and, and put it into our own staging, our own smaller chamber, unique staging. And, and I think they, they liked that we maintained the integrity of the piece. And you got Anti on board as well as a sponsor. That's his record label now, right? Yeah. Is he still on Anti? He is still on Anti. Why did he sort of get restrictive in 2004? Aside from just seeing productions he didn't like, you said he's kind of crawled into a bit of a shell for that sort of stuff? Well, I just don't think he likes other people doing his work badly. And I think if he saw someone do it badly, then that was the reason enough. In fact, there's another play of his out there that Kathleen wrote the libretto to, Frank's Wild Years. You know that album, Frank's Wild Years, classic 1986 album, I believe. And, uh, and it was done at Steppenwolf Theatre, which is John Malkovich and Gary Sinise's theater in Chicago. He performed in it. He acted in it. He wrote the music. Kathleen wrote the script. It was only performed once uh, or it, during this one initial run. It was a huge sellout. It was a wonderful success. Yes, yet they won't let anyone else get the rights to it because they just don't feel it's ready to be performed by other people. They just want to do it themselves. So I think it's a bit of a control issue. But but he likes what we do. Was it hard it, to get Anti as a sponsor, as record label, Anti Records? Well, not really. I mean, we called Brett them... Gerwitz, Bad Religion, Epitaph. Yeah, at the time, we just we called him up and said, hey, you're releasing his albums. Do you want to advertise his albums in our program? And we sold them advertising space. So it was funny because we had to pay Tom Waits X amount of dollars to buy the rights. And at the same time, we got... Uh, the same amount of money from Anti Records, his his record label, to you know promote his albums in our in our programs. So that's how it all worked out. They were happy to to be associated with the show. They were happy that the show was getting done. So it wasn't how do you know that Tom Waits hasn't seen you perform in person? Do Tom Waits imitators come to the actual gigs and such? No, they don't. Some people do. Dre- people try to imitate Tom Waits. Have we thought is that could be could that be Tom Waits? No. Like when you're on stage, you must be able to see the audience. You can see the or can you? Sometimes if the lights in your eyes, you. Can't Have you ever see. thought this is the night he's actually there? <laughs> We're hoping that he's going to come up now. He was supposed to shoot a 
a film with Terry Gilliam up here, but Heath Ledger, the star of the film, died, so the, uh, the, the shooting's been postponed. But they're looking at replacing Heath Ledger, maybe with, I don't know, Johnny Depp, who knows. But uh, if the shooting goes ahead, Tom may finally get to see it live, but he's got to get up here soon. Uh, and the Black Rider is playing how long at the Arts Club? It's, until, it's on tonight, it's right? It's on tonight, every night except for Sundays, uh, until February 9th, 8 o'clock every night, except for Tuesdays at 7.30. we got a 2 o'clock Saturday matinee. But no, Tom hasn't seen it, because I, I talked to his personal assistant and Kathleen uh, off We saw on. it on DVD. Yeah, he saw it, and hopefully he'll come and see it if he shoots the film. What do you look like, Michael Scholar in The Black Rider? Are you Peter Chris or are you Ace Freely? What do you look like? <laughs> I am, Could you describe yourself to the listeners? Well, the, the whole show is done in whiteface. A kind of like clown white makeup is put on. You've been wearing over... whiteface for 10 years. I know, and so eventually I will turn white. I mean, I'm a Latino boy with a nice olive skin tone. That's getting whiter and whiter by the day. And yeah, I kind of do like, I guess, a mix of Peter Chris and I would say Paul Stanley more than anything with this white face and the, the black eyes and the black lips. I, I had this big tuft of hair on my chest and my belly that when I put the white face down on my chest, because I, I, I kind of do the whole body, it really did look like those old guys from the. From Kiss, the hair and the. Do you have new respect for Kiss? I do, because they painstakingly apply that makeup every night, and yet they go out there and rock, and the makeup stays in place. It doesn't seem to drip off their face. I'm very, very proud of what they do. Michael Scholar from The Black Rider, what's the difference between, and the similarities between The Black Rider and Knight Rider? Uh, Well, Knight Rider, of course, they have a talking car, and we don't have a talking car. So that's one of the differences. Um, one of the similarities, uh, I guess the hair on my chest is very similar to David Hasselhoff's. Um, yeah, that, that's probably the greatest similarity between Knight Rider and Black Rider. Ten years of white face. Ten years of white face. Not straight. I mean, it's off and on. I, I mean, I do other things. I'm an actor, so I, you know, I do Shakespeare at Bard on the Beach. And I do... But you are committed to the craft, aren't you? Well, I, I am. I'm committed to, to, to putting on white face and singing the devil's songs. I, I like the devil's songs the best. And how about the importance, Michael Scholar yeah. from The Black Rider, playing this next couple of days at the Arts Club on Granville Island. Yeah. More information at November 3rd theater.com is that where people can get that's info? a good place or the arts club theater website uh, or the pushfestival.ca you know the value of a good promo pick don't you you I know do. the value of a good promo pick because your promo picks have really been used quite a bit you've been up and center in those promo picks what yeah. is the value of a good promo pick well you gotta have a very striking image uh, something unique, I think, uh, something that... What are your promo picks? Well, our promo picks are usually me in white face. Uh, I'm, I'm the devil, so there's pictures of me with a rose or pictures of me coming out of a, a big doorway. There's also pictures of our other actors like Kevin uh, Corey, who plays Willem, and he's all tortured and his face is screaming. And Rachel Johnston, our, our young actress who plays uh, Kachin, she's contorted with these big antlers in her hands and screaming. Scratching the floor. So any any kind of image that's really striking and dynamic and different. And the colors, colors, uh, vibrant backlash colors. to white face. Like for instance, the Whoopi Goldberg head dancing <laughs> thing. Did you have a bad reaction like when you're because you were doing it around that time? Yeah. Were people afraid of white face? Or does white face always deliver no, all the time? Whoopi, Whoopi Goldberg liked our show. She she didn't mind the white face, but I heard David Duke wasn't a big fan. Whoopi Goldberg actually attended your no, performance. I'm, I'm oh, making okay. that up. I'm making that up. No, I, I was I, just wondering there. Although the, <laughs> There's a very famous American writer coming to see our show this Saturday afternoon, but I'm not going to say who. But if somebody phones in uh, when we finish this interview, they might be able to win a ticket to attend. 
that actual performance. I do have tickets famous, available. With that very famous American writer. Will he be recognizable in the audience? He, he, he definitely will be. How tight have you got it down, Michael? How tight have you got down your performance in The Black Rider? How tight have you got it? Like, pretty, ten pretty. years worth of it. <laughs> Can you give a sample to the listeners? A little okay. sample for us. Like, you must have this tight. Like, how do you memorize this stuff? Oh, memorizing's easy. What are the tips? Well, the tips are rehearse. If you've got, like, three weeks to memorize... But you've had ten, ten years! <laughs> exactly. Ten years, so hit us with ten years of tightness. Okay. Because you got it down. And give her give her a little bit. Maybe a little okay. setup here. I'm going to back up of, from the microphone here. Yeah, can here. you give a bit of setup for us? Okay, what, well, what is this going to happen? Well, the, well what I'm going to do here, I Maybe guess... Maybe something Tom Waitsy, you know, since we are a radio show. Right. Um, do you have anything? Or what, I'll, I'll say no. I'll sing, I'll sing a little... A or little something t- that Tom Waits would like. Tom Waits would probably like me to shut up and get off the air. <laughs> but, um... I'm sure many people have told him that, too. Ba-boom! Ba-boom! Good one. I, I think uh, what I could do for you... I mean, I, it's a tight show. We've rehearsed Your it. favorite little bit. How about your favorite bit? That okay, comes this your, is the... Because song. I was wondering, like, something you might use in everyday life. Because you've been doing this show for ten years. I, not, yes. Ten years. That's... You've got this thing memorized. In everyday life, have you ever been, like, at a corner store and just felt like blurting it or using phrases? You know, like, your favorite little bit from it. Maybe you could give the listeners that. Well, a my... little sample of The Black Rider oh, okay. by Tom Waits. Here, here you go. Live performance. Uh, no accompaniment. This is Michael Scholar Jr. as the devil singing Peg Leg's song um, Just the Right Bullets. Just a little excerpt of it. There is a light in the forest there's a face in the trees i'll pull you out of the chorus and the first one's always free you can never go a hunting with just a flintlock and a hound you won't go home with a bunting if you blow a hundred rounds there you go Givener, Michael Scholar from the Black Rider. Ten years you've been doing that. Ten, years. Ten, Ten years. Ten years. So I know it pretty much front to finish. But, you know, every night is a little bit different. Every night is a, is a live performance. It's not recorded. So, you know, there's breath. There's give and take. There's evolution. The audience is different. You're standing slightly off to the left. And, you know, there's a different chemistry between the But you get in the groove, though. Like, you oh, know yeah. Tom Waits, the black writer, better than Tom Waits. Ten years Probably. of doing this. Ten years. What sort of following does Tom Waits have? You kind of mentioned a bit of people coming to the show. But what sort of audience does Tom Waits have after doing this for all these years? What does the Tom Waits audience look like? Or is it not necessarily a Tom Waits audience? Does after the performance of the black writer have when people are like, who really put this help put this together? Do they have any idea about that? Like, because I know it's like Scholar Johansson is now into Tom Waits. Yeah, these she days. did a whole album of his songs. I, I think she's beautiful. I'm not sure if she's a beautiful. She was like singer. 14 or whatever when you started doing the Black Rider. I, yeah, I was probably 14 when I started doing the Black Rider. But I, I've I've always had a thing for Scarlett Johansson. So if she's listening, you have my seal of approval for doing Tom Waits' songs. But what do the audience look like? Well, the audience looks like. Uh, the other day we had this man who came dressed in white face himself and he had like black eyes and this kind of gothic robe and I'm not sure whether he goes everywhere dressed like that or whether he came just... Do people dress up for your performances? Sometimes. Like, or they dress up like clockwork orange droogs, that sort of thing, you know, skinheads? Occasionally. it's We, we always get excited. We, we kind of whisper about it backstage. Have you seen the guy in the third row? He's wearing a, you know, bl- white face and a big shoulder paddy kind of outfit. So uh, on a couple of occasions... Because it is kind of clockwork orange violent, isn't it? It has some of that violent anger. Yeah. So you could see some of 
the tribes coming out angry, you know? Gothic. I think it's more gothic, you know? So, like, you know, we got the elements of Clockwork Orange, but we don't really have people fighting or hitting each other in the audience. Has there been a fight in the audience? <laughs> no. Uh, we, we haven't even had anyone die in the audience. Although once I directed a show at the Arts Club, I Love You, You're Perfect, Now Change. And during the funeral scene, uh, a man had a heart attack, and uh, I'm not sure where they passed away, but they did carry him out on a gurney. And then we had to stop the scene and start all over again. Uh, the scene that took place at a funeral, and it was kind of about picking up chicks over a dead man's body. It was... Well, Not at least really he died, strange. hopefully, doing something he would have liked to do, and at least yeah. you were able to help him die. And, and, and we're speaking here to Killer, Michael Scholar from The Black Rider, which is happening the next couple of days at the Arts Club Lounge. The Arts Club Theatre. Arts Club, Arts Club Theatre right. on Granville Island. How about William S. Burroughs yeah. fans? Uh, what does a William S. Burroughs fan look like? Because uh, we've that, been talking a lot about Tom Waits, not yeah. giving props to the other people involved. Who else is there? William S. Burroughs, Tom Waits, who else? And Robert Wilson, the great avant-garde theatre director. And unfortunately, Robert Wilson isn't well-known enough in North America, but he is the greatest artist of I our time. I get him mixed up with Robert Anton Wilson. Uh, a lot of people do. He's not the writer, though. He's just this insane choreographer slash designer slash director that uh, looks at the world completely different than anyone else on the planet. He plays with time. He plays with space. It, he is the creator of the Black Rider. He's the one who says, Tom, come out to Germany. Write me the music and lyrics. Uh, Mr. Burroughs, please come out and write the libretto. And he pieced it all together and staged it. He, he's a genius, but not too many people come out saying, hey, I wonder what the new Robert Wilson play looks like. Or let's go see Robert Wilson's Black Rider. People come for Tom Waits and occasionally for Burroughs as what well. What was Burroughs' reaction to the Black Rider? Because didn't he die pretty much after it was put together? Or when did he die? I think like, he did died. Did he ever actually see it? Oh, yes, he did. He died in 97. So he didn't see our production, but he saw the German production in 90. Um, and uh, Burroughs loved the story because it's it's a story about a man who makes a deal with the devil uh, for some magic bullets that will always hit their mark. And of course, Burroughs killed his wife in Mexico and got off scot-free by I, I think he paid off some judges. And he's been living with it ever since and he's been writing about it ever since. And here was a, a chance to re-examine that kind of dark love killing story. How did Waits and Burroughs get along? Evidently, they, they were buddies. I mean, the, the stories they tell is uh, Waits would write some, uh, uh, Burroughs would write, write something and Waits would swing off of the branches of what uh, Burroughs found. Burroughs took this folk story and made it a contemporary uh, allegory. He, he found things that we do in our everyday life where we sell our souls to the devil. He says, we sell it a little bit of a, at a time and we don't even realize it. You know, with our drug addictions. There's a lot of drug addiction parallels in this story. And, uh, and, and those aren't things that are inherently in the folk story. That's Burroughs finding the heart of the story and creating this whole new piece out of it. And Waits swinging off of that and writing music inspired by Burroughs. And they went back and forth like that. Burroughs inspired by Waits. So they were... And there are Burroughs fans friends. coming out to check this out? They are, but it's hard to recognize them because, you know... They... Now it should be easy. You have the Burroughs fans, the Waits <laughs> fans, and the Scarlett Johansson fans. Like, she's going to open it up to a whole new generation. I what exactly that... is Scarlett Johansson doing with Tom Waits? Well, she recorded something for a new album, right? She recorded, an, I believe it's an entire album of Tom Waits covers. So Waits had nothing to do with the album except for he originally wrote the songs and she re-recorded them. Of course, he must have have to give approval, right? Yeah, he did. She, she paid for the rights, but I don't think he was in the studio coaching her or writing her any songs. I just think he's 
happy that a pretty girl's singing his songs. I'm not sure if she's a good singer, though. I hated what Holly Cole did with the song. Sorry, Holly, if you're listening, or if there's any Holly fans out there. She kind of... Did you, did you ever hear that Holly Cole album? She did a whole Tom Waits album, uh, and, and I, I believe she even went on record saying that she did a better job at singing the songs than he did. And, you know, her songs were good, but it's, it's pretty arrogant to say you could do it better than the original Troubadour who, you know, composed them. Michael Scholar from The Black Rider. The audience again. The schmells that are in the audience. Have you schmelt schmells like when you're performing? You said maybe you can't see the people, but can you schmell schmells? No, well, on occasion I, I, I do pass gas on stage and I've had a few people comment on uh, not... But how about the audience? <laughs> audience schmells, like schmells from the audience or distractions. People pretty, people ugly or just things that throw you off. Like do you get distracted at all by any stuff? Because there must be some interesting stuff after doing it for 10 years. Yeah. Like the schmells, like the Schmel drive you? There are, there, no, Schmel's have never distracted me. Although there are some people that have occasionally um, sung along with the songs. It doesn't happen very often, but there'll be a couple people that will know a song and they'll sing along, and that kind of distracts me a little bit. So you do want people to sing back the songs? Are I you don't scared know. when they're mouthing them back? That's not the mouthing. It's just when I can hear them. I'm like, and they've got a slightly different pitch or a slightly different rhythm, and I, 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 I want to like sing in rhythm with someone else. So I don't. I, I, it would be fun if it was they like must a rocky be going pretty loud. Was it a pretty slow show that you could hear them, <laughs> or was it a big show? Like, were you loud enough? Uh, maybe I wasn't loud enough that day. I, 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 it doesn't happen very often, but I don't. I don't get distracted. I, I'm pretty focused, and this isn't a challenge. I don't want people to come and try to distract me. I, 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 I just want people to come and enjoy it, however they're going to enjoy it, and they can be vocal and they can be quiet. It's, it's not a church. A lot of people, strangely enough, will sit on their hands or, or be quiet. Certain audiences won't say a thing throughout the entire show and then they'll just erupt into huge uh, applause at the end of the show. How about when you look out in the audience you see Elvis Costello? <laughs> I, I, I haven't seen Elvis Costello at the show, although I sat next to Elvis Costello and because uh, he does live name? in Vancouver now or in Nanaimo, right? Because of Diana Krall, isn't that right? Isn't that his partner? Has Diana Krall done any Tom Waits sing? I don't think so, but I, I, I did sit next to Diana and, and Elvis Costello at an Eddie Izzard show, and I, I timed it out so Elvis and I would go to the bathroom at the same time, and I tried to be all casual about it. I'm like, hey. How did you time that out? <laughs> well, I'm sitting next to him. I'm just, you just well, figured he's going to have four beers. He's going <laughs> to head there. No, I just figured, uh, wait till the intermission, and, and the, you know, what do you do in an intermission when you're did Elvis Costello? Did he look Costello? like Elvis Costello? Oh, he looked exactly like Elvis Costello. He had the glasses, he had the beard, a little mustache, he had that cool suit, and I think... Did Diana Krall look like Diana Krall? Very crawly. Super crawly. Creepy crawly. An Eddie Izzard show. <laughs> he brings down the house, doesn't he? Yeah, and uh, and, and we, we, we ended up in line together at the same time at the urinals, or lining up for the urinals, and I tried to play it all casual. I'm like, hey, you're Elvis Costello, aren't you? He's like, yep. I'm like, uh, so you here for the show? Yep. Um, guess you're going to the bathroom now. Yep. So I left it at that, and that, that was the most awkward Did you go silence. into the urinal with them? Well, we were standing next to each other, and I did my best not to peek over. Well, you actually went into the urinal with them. Well, we were, there's six urinals, so yeah, we were, we were in the You're very brave. <laughs> I almost did that with Noam Chomsky at UBC. It's but like Noam Chomsky was taking a piss, and I had to go in there, but I held back because I just couldn't bear... I didn't want to see Noam Chomsky's cock. I mean, no. you know, be okay to see Elvis Costello's cock, but Noam Chomsky's cock, that could cause some problems. Well, do you, you think, some you think Noam picture. Chomsky's got a big cock or a small cock? 
I didn't even want to think about it. I didn't want to get in the way because I thought, I don't want to distract him, say he hits his cock on the porcelain, say like he slips, he falls, and then the world will all go to hell. I mean, this is an important person. We've got to keep a distance on something like Noam Chomsky. But then as soon as he stepped out of the washroom, I did ask him about Gilligan's Island and the security like pulled me away. What does Noam Chomsky have to do with Gilligan's Island? I don't know. I decided to ask him about Gilligan's Island and the beaver, you know, that oh, sort okay. of thing. You know, popular culture in there. And we're speaking here to Michael Scholar from the Black Rider, which is an actual, what is the Black Rider again? It's a rock opera by Tom Waits, William S. Burroughs, and Robert Wilson. That is in here in Vancouver, British Columbia, it Canada. Is. Yeah, and it, happening now. I, I, November Theatre is producing it, and it's being presented by the Arts Club Theatre on Granville Island in conjunction with the Push Festival till February 9th. And we're going to reward some listeners shortly yeah. for listening to this interview, and also coming up on an Artwriting Human Serviette radio show shortly, an interview with From the Jam, Rick Buckler from the Jam, who are playing tomorrow night in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada at Richards on Richards. What other productions? of the Black Rider have there been? You mentioned Marianne Faithful. Yeah. Who is she playing? What other productions have there been? Who has acted in it? Who has played you? Uh, Marianne Faithful played my role in the uh, only other English production to exist. Robert Wilson staged his own uh, English production in 2004, which started in London. Have you uh, talked to Robert Wilson at all? I have, yes. Um, I believe he told me to not call him again. <laughs> no, I, I tracked him down in Paris, and he's like, it's 12 o'clock here, what do, you, what do you want? And I said, I wanted the rights for Black Rider, and he gave me the number for his office in New York. And Good work. This is pre-internet, <laughs> isn't it? This is yeah. pre-internet. Yes, this is way back in the day, and uh, 98. Seven, I guess it was. And I did talk to him in 99 when we went to New York to do the show. And he was supposed to come see our opening night, but our opening night got postponed because of some uh, visa difficulties. And, uh, and so I did talk to him then. And I said, uh, sorry, our opening night's been postponed. Can you come at another time later in the week? He's like, sorry, I, I can't make it because I'm taking life-sized Polaroids of my friends. And Robert Wilson's the only man on the planet who can have that kind of an excuse. He, he said it was like... A, a gigantic camera that was so big it came with its own operator. And uh, he, he cast Marianne Faithful. Uh, Who yes. else has been cast in a different role? Uh, Matt McGrath was. Uh, he played Willem. Matt McGrath was one of the Hedwigs from Hedwig and the Angry Inch and the Broadway production. Um, but originally, it was gonna, before Marianne Faithful got cast. It was going to be Eddie Izzard and uh, Alan Cumming playing the devil and Willem, and they were going to switch roles nightly. And Bjork was going to play young Katchen, uh, but uh, for some reason that didn't work out. But Mary Margaret O'Hara ended up playing Cotchin in that same production that started in London and toured across the States. And I saw it in San Fran, I guess it was 2004. I didn't like Marianne Faithful very much. She was a bit old and a bit tired and looked like she'd have been propped up on stage and forgot where she was. But, but what did they think they were getting when they got her to do it? They were getting cachet. They were getting a wonderful name. She delivered what people expected. I guess. So they got someone from the drug culture to f add another thematic element. But Matt McGrath was fantastic and the whole production was so beautiful. I mean, the design, the execution, it's just... Robert Wilson's work is so amazing. So I, if your listeners are going to call in and get free tickets, they have to name one other Robert Wilson production. And whoever can name another Robert Wilson production, they get two free tickets whenever they want to come see the show. That's 604-822-247, 604-UBC-CITR if you want some free tickets to the Black Rider in the next couple of days. When would it win tickets to? What show? Uh, uh, let's say tomorrow night. Tomorrow Saturday night. night. Tomorrow night. Not the afternoon show with the super important person. Oh, okay, we could do the Saturday night. It's their open. choice. It's their okay, choice. Okay, whatever they'd like to actually come and see. 604-822-247, 604-UBC-CITR. And winding up here, how does yours compare? Like, when you saw the other productions of The Black Rider, how did yours compare? Well, they had millions and millions of dollars. It's a huge, a multi 
mega it's a, it's a mega musical and, and it's it's just fantastic and amazing and it's about three and a half hours long our production's an hour and a half an hour and 40 minutes actually so ours is more streamlined ours is a little more condensed it's uh it, like I said, it's a chamber production, so we, we tell the story, I think, a little bit clearer than Robert does. Robert takes time to pull the story apart, and, and although the story is, is examined from many different angles in our production, um, it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's very different in its size and its scale and its execution. Uh, I think our story is kind of, I don't know... It would it'd be like a, a, a quartet performing uh, a, a full orchestral number. So you get something new in the translation. And this, looking at the clips of yours, mm-hmm. I was thinking, how can anybody top yours? <laughs> how could they top yours? I mean, well, the clips look really good. The promo photos, how could they top well, you? Well, I don't want to draw too many comparisons, but in Gospel Train, the, the song I sing where I'm like ripping Willem around the stage with these marionette sticks and he's like my puppet and I pull him this way and that way and the acrobatics that Kevin does is phenomenal but in in the original production the <laughs> the devil comes flying in from the roof and he's 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 on this big white chair that's floating and his fingers are all on fire and he just sits there singing while his fingers are on fire and it's fabulous but that doesn't sound very tom waits ghetto does it i mean you got the ghetto version i mean that's good yeah ours is ghetto ours ours, ours is street could you do any in the states you mentioned that you played in new york could you do more in the states like in los angeles or anywhere else or did somebody else have the rights for those areas or is this too expensive to try to do it there i don't think there's much point in going there anymore i mean we we did the world english premiere and we've become the only canadian production and the only other company that's even allowed to do it around the world but LA has seen the Robert Wilson version uh, San Fran's seen the Robert Wilson version the New York has seen the German Robert Wilson version so there's no real point in, in going there uh, again I mean I, I, I want to share this show with people who haven't seen it. I don't Have want... you done it in Toronto at all? I looked at your tour dates and I didn't no. see Toronto listed. See, that's where we want to go. That's our, Before we finally kill this project, we've been doing it for 10 years, we would love to take it to Toronto and possibly Montreal. And then we can walk away hands-free and say, we've done Canada, we've introduced Canada to this piece, and hopefully to Robert Wilson, and maybe other pieces will get done. Because there are two other Tom Waits, Robert Wilson pieces uh, which might be a clue for your listeners if they're going to call in. Uh, Michael Scholar, winding up here from the Black Rider, how are you from Edmonton? How is this from Edmonton? I know you from Vancouver, and how do I know you? Well, I know you through Jason Margolis, who's uh, my best friend, and he's a buddy of yours. Um, I, I, I was born in Regina. I went to school in Edmonton, so that's where this production started in 1998. I was at the University of Alberta at the time. And since then, I mean, as, I, as you have pointed out many times, the production's lasted for 10 years. And in 10 years, people move around. So I move around, and I moved to Vancouver, I guess. Because I want to say it's from Vancouver, but you keep saying Edmonton. Well, it's dangerous. Well, it's, 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 the company started in Edmonton, but now we're setting our roots down in Vancouver. So November Theatre will now, is now a Vancouver-based pr- uh, production company, but the show started in Edmonton. It had its roots in Edmonton. And you were also Vancouver's number one Cribs fan, aren't you? I the am. The Cribs. I love the Cribs. You got some Cribs here today? We're going to end, actually, Nardwater Human Serviette Radio Show, hopefully with a little assort. What are we going to end here? We have some actual, we're going to end the interview with you, Michael, and coming up from the jam. Oh, yeah. Rick Buckler from From the Jam. Jam coming up, but we have. Is he from from the jam? He is from 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 the jam. It was very confusing, actually, but not as confusing as the Black Rider, <laughs> which will totally dumbfound you. Which is playing the next couple of days at the Arts Club 
on Granville Island. Till Feb 9th. And we are going to play a sampling of something that you are actually going to be singing in the performance. That's right. I do sing this song. It's the track number two. It's called Come On Along with the Black Rider. It's the song the devil sings uh, with the whole cast, inviting everyone in to have a good time and to take off their skin and dance around in their bowls. And you've also done a whole bunch of other stuff, too. Like, you've acted in a guy thing with Julia Stiles. <laughs> I think it was filmed at Zulu Records. I remember that. It was filmed at Zulu. Were you in the Zulu Records theme? Uh, I wasn't in the Zulu record scene. I was in a dance scene that they shot downtown where they had us doing ballroom dance and I, I was hired as I guess what they call a special skills extra um, because I can dance. We did a bit of ballroom but I managed to insert myself into the film by because this was one of my first gigs in town and I didn't know that extras were supposed to be quiet so I, I kept throwing in these vocal reactions that were I don't know. Like I, I thought they were contributing to the scene so Jason Lee would screw up a dance step and I'd go <laughs> <laughs> or laugh at him or, you know, just... Did re- it get picked up by the mic? It did get picked up. And then they put a, fo- a, a shot of me in there. So, uh, you the know... editors I, did after. The, the, the cameraman at the time, he's like, okay, well, he's reacting. Let's pick him up. And then they, they threw me into the film. And-, and then you got hired as a Hispanic hustler. What yeah. was that for? Oh, that was uh, The Collectors, a great series uh, I don't think is shooting anymore in town called The Collector, about the devil, and that was me playing the devil. Again, I always play the devil. Uh, every episode of The Collector, the devil embodies himself in a different you know, persona, and I was the Hispanic hustler who was playing three-card Monty on the street, and I was talking to the collector who's collecting people's souls and playing a little bit of three-card Monty whenever he Because I also needed. saw that you were in Black Slash, which I thought that maybe you played the Black Slash. No, no, I, I, I believe the name of my character in that ill-fated television show was called uh, Tough. Uh, because he, he he didn't deserve to have a name. He was just called Tough because he was like a Mexican tough guy. I play a lot of Mexicans, unfortunately. And not, not, not that playing Mexican is bad. I, I am Latino. My mother's Mexican. But, you know, I tend to only get these, these Latino roles. And you helped launch the career of Jonovision. Jonovision, didn't you? When Street so, Sense. No, Jonovision was already and up and running. And I, 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 I was on Street Sense, yes. But I was on Street Sense after Jonovision. So after Jonathan... Coombs, Torrance, what the frick is his name? Torrance. Yeah, Jonathan Torrance. When Jonathan Torrance left, I was there. So maybe he helped make my career. Because in 99, 2000, I was uh, doing Street Sense in Halifax. It was a lot of fun. And yes, I met the Thrush Hermit guys. A really great scene at the time. Thrush Hermit was breaking up. So I went to the last Thrush Hermit show ever, which was phenomenal. They played all these videos, retrospective. And... uh, there was uh, Plum Tree playing, and Sloan was playing, and my, one of my favorite bands uh, was was working at, on Street Sense, North of America. Oh, great band. I think they got a new band called The Good Get Got, or Get the Good I think Go. one of the guys relocated to Vancouver yeah. for a little while, too. Mark Moulin, that's, that's the he dude. He worked at the CBC. Yes, yes, they, they, the CBC likes and to... And speaking of rock and roll, rock lastly, and roll. lastly, lastly here, lastly, Michael Scholar, yeah. Hardcore Logo, what's next? Well, it's the... You want to do the play version, the opera version of Hardcore Logo. The ink is not on the paper yet. It's not a final thing. But yes, I am in discussion right now with Michael Turner, the brilliant uh, novelist who wrote Hardcore Logo, and in discussion with Bruce McDonald, the filmmaker who made the film adaptation, and also in discussion with a, a brilliant Vancouver punk rock legend to write the music, but since it's not finalized, I shouldn't say too much about it. That's hopefully going to be our next project for November Theatre. So imagine what I'm playing now, except done to the tune of Hardcore Logo and no Billy Talent involved, right? Oh yeah, not not the band Billy Talent, no, but Billy Talent, the character, he'll be in the show. So from the Black Rider, right now, we are going to play... 
Come on along with the Black Rider. And if anybody would like some free tickets to go see the Black Rider tomorrow night at 604-822-2487, 604-UBC-CITR. And if they don't want to win free tickets and they want to buy tickets, it's when again? Uh, it's, it's up until February 9th at the Arts Club Theatre. Go to the Arts Club website or the Push Festival website or even our website, novembertheatre.com, and you'll be able to... Uh, Find your links there. 604-822-247, 604-UBC-CITR for some Black Rider tickets. And coming up, Rick Buckler from The Jam. And do-do-do-do-do, Michael. Do-do. Like 
Well, it, there's obviously myself and Bruce Foxton um, from the original lineup, um, but we've got a new frontman, Russell Hastings, um, new new frontman and guitarist, um, and he's just he's great. You know, he's 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 just as passionate about it as uh, as myself and Bruce are, and. Um, we've also got um, uh, a guy called Dave Moore who's playing keyboards and second guitar. And again, that was uh, an avenue that, that at the time the jam never really explored. We had extra brass players or keyboard players or backing vocals or whatever. But to be able to sort of um, put in those extra guitar parts this time around is a bit of a bonus for us. Um, and it, it, it really does add to the sound on stage. And um, So, you know, I think we're, we're very happy with the lineup. and. You know, we're obviously, you know, if, if, if Russ wasn't up to the mark, we wouldn't be here, you know. I mean, he's, uh, he does a fantastic job. And how has reception been? Specifically, you played the House of Blues in Disneyland a little while ago. How was that, playing the House of Blues, Disneyland? Well, the House of Blues venues, I mean, are, uh, are fantastic. I mean, they're, 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 they're great venues. Uh, they're well-equipped. The stage is great. They've got good people working for them. Um, it was a bit strange to find that that one was actually in uh, the grounds of the Disney uh, complex, um, but it, it didn't uh, it didn't detract it at all. I think um, you know to us it was still just another gig, you know, um, you know. So we enjoyed it as much as we do all the others, really. Well, to throw another date at you, Rick, what do you remember about your first gigs, the Jam's first gigs at the Whiskey A Go Go in Los Angeles? Well, they were a bit strange um, in some ways, um, you know, because the American audiences and the American music at that time was completely different from what was happening in the UK. So it was, it was a, a, a bit of a mixed thing that we, you know, um, we, there were obviously people who wanted to see us, and we, but we were trying to break new ground, trying to, to convert people to, you know, to what we were doing, if you like. Um, um, but it was a different time. It was a different era. I mean, we we did some some dates with uh, um, you know supporting bands like Blue Oyster Cult and, uh, and what have you. So it was it was some different things happening there in in the states musically. Well, this specifically for those gigs, like I saw listed two nights at the Whiskey. What was the reaction? Did you get a good feeling doing those gigs? Were you headlining those gigs at the Whiskey? Did you feel like things are off on a good foot, like those first two gigs? Yeah, I mean, yeah, we 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 did. I mean, it was it was quite. It's quite an intimate sort of gig, and um, you know, there was uh, you know quite a bit of interest. Um, but it, it it really was. You know, America's so big, and um, I mean, if you're talking about the first tour that we we did over over here, I think we were doing two shows a night, two two nights in each town, and we did four towns in about 16 days. So there's. That's, uh, that's a lot of work for, for um, you know, to, to fly in and do. But, I mean, it was it was exciting to do it. Rick, for this particular tour with From the Jam, and again, we're speaking here to Rick Buckler from From the Jam, who are playing Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, tomorrow night at Richards & Richards. For this particular tour, did you have to pull your drums out of the garden? Were your drums in the garden for a whole bunch of years? <laughs> no, no. That was something that the TV company sort of hammed up I think you know that they for a start they weren't really my drums you know um, 
I certainly wouldn't leave them lying down the bottom of the garden. It was they were just a, a, a couple of old rototoms that, that my children used to play with, and they used to drag them down there and make a racket to annoy the neighbours. You know, they must have got that sort of attitude from me, maybe. But um, no, that that really didn't have anything. I mean, I uh, I had to sort myself out with a, with a new kit just when I got back into playing, and I've got I've got myself a nice nice new Ludwig kit which I, I use, which is fantastic. Um, anything from the jam days because I understand that Bruce is wearing the same suits that he wore in the jam is that true um, I don't know about the suits I mean a lot of the shirts we've still got um, you know some of the suits I, I, I remember trying trying them on years afterwards I couldn't get into the trousers the jacket still fit but the trousers didn't um, but I think uh, no we've pretty much kitted ourselves out with mostly new stuff I mean some of my some of my drum kit is from uh, all those years ago, a lot of my symbols are still the same as I used uh, 25 years ago and cowbells and that sort of thing. But um, I, the kit was in a bit in a bit of a shabby state. It had been it had been worked to death, and I just thought, well, I'll treat myself to a new one. You know. What about all the other stuff associated with the jam, some of the merchandising and whatnot? For instance, I was looking at an advert from the 70s for a jam shoe by Shelley's or Denison. Do you have any jam shoes? Did you ever get any royalties from that? Like all these shops saying, here's a jam shoe that you can buy. Here's a Union Jack jam jacket by Carnaby Cavern. Did you get any dollars from that? Not as such, no. I mean, we used to get free clothes, free suits, free shirts, free shoes. Um, and that was basically the deal that they would use their name to, uh, um, uh, you know, to promote them. But I mean, that was because we we sought out these these places where we could buy specific things. You know, um, a lot of our clothes we got from Carnaby Street in London, and we, you know, from from places from shops called Melandies, and then we had suits made for us and what have you. Um, so uh, I noticed one of the ads said in brackets, "We make for the jam." Like it said, Carnaby Cavern, and in brackets, we make for the jam. Coming yeah. in by, was that something like you said, you can use our name and we get the free stuff? Was that kind of the deal that's you think it worked much, out? Yeah, that's pretty much the deal, you know. I mean, obviously, the, the, the clothing gets gets literally put through the mill when you're on the road because you, it's, uh, it's hot, sweaty work, and some of the suits don't survive because they're constantly being dry cleaned while they're still damp. And um, So we were getting through clothes all the time, you know. Um, but yeah, we, we were fortunate enough to have these companies behind us to sort of, you know, um, help us out there and, you know, we, you scratch my back, etc. Is there still a jam shoe? I see that Bruce Foxton has a shoe now, but is there still a jam shoe that's for sale? Like, can you buy a jam shoe still? There is, in, in, a, in a way. I mean, we've, we've done another deal with a, with a shoe company called Icon. Um, and they supply us with shoes. Um, so there is, a, there is, I suppose, a jam shoe. But I mean, the the one that you're uh, that you're probably referring to would be the, the sort of Shelley shoe, which yes. the, the white topped shoe. Um, that was really because we saw that that shoe and really felt that that was what we wanted to um, to wear, you know. And um, it just just really took it from there. They they didn't uh, sort of design it specifically for us. We just picked up on what they had and um, sort of made it our own, if you like. Are people dressing up and wearing any jam suits or jam shoes to the gigs at all that you've been playing so far? Well, obviously, the, you know, the whole mod fashion is, is pretty much uh, where we're at, I suppose. So it's, it's not necessarily, I suppose it's become known as jam shoes and jam suits, but really it's, 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 it's all part of that original sort of mod, mod fashion with button-down shirts and 
shop suits and you know that sort of thing. Rick Buckler from From the Jam coming to Vancouver on Saturday night, tomorrow night here to Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, to Richards and Richards. When the Small Faces toured Australia in the late 60s, they weren't so much into the mod because they progressed more into the psychedelic sort of angle. But when they landed in Australia, Australia, I guess, was a tiny bit behind, and they were greeted at the airport by like a Vespa escort of mods. Have you been having the same sort of thing, like From the Jam lands in California and a whole bunch of Vespas follow? you to your hotel are you getting any vespa escorts or anything like that no no not not on this particular job we haven't seen too much of that i mean the last time we were over here there was a, there was a, a lot of that um i don't know whether people have just moved on and grown up and uh, and got into their own fashion thing but i, mean, I think mod mod fashion is 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 something that people still associate themselves with because it's it is such a fantastic style um, and it just really suited us. That's you know, Paul was very much into that early Marriott look with the bouffant haircut and the, the, the sharp clothes and, uh, and and that sort of thing. Um, I mean, obviously when when you know Marriott um, and, the, and the small faces, they 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 sort of evolved with the time as it, as, it, as it went. And maybe we're doing the same thing. I don't know. Rick Buckler from From the Jam, you guys actually played some scooter rallies, didn't you? Like you played like the Camber Sands scooter rally, you played the Madra Phoenix. You've played some actual scooter rallies from the Jam has. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, they're really good to do. I mean, the, 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 the whole thing in um, the UK is uh, the music is very much wrapped up in, in the whole cultural thing of where you go, to, you know, where you hang out, the sort of clothes you wear, the sort of music that you listen to, the sort of vehicles you might ride around in or on. Um, so it, it's all, it's the whole package, really. Rick Buckler from From The Jam. I always thought The Jam sounded amazing, and all the songs, this were like instant hits. But I understand your record label, Polydor, didn't always hear hits. Did they have suggestions, specifically like Polydor in the States, of who you should use as a producer? Like, did they once say, you should get George Martin to produce you? We don't want, like what you're doing right now. Were they trying to steer you in that direction, like the Polydor USA division? Um, we had a lot of control over what we did. Um, I mean, that, singles like Down in the Tube Station at Midnight, I think because uh, we just felt that well, what, we didn't really, there were so many songs to choose that we could have chosen as a single. So what we did was we, we, we drew up a list and, uh, of all the songs and we thought, well, that's the most leak, least likely one to be a single. So let's make that the single. You know, whether we were doing it just to annoy the record company or whether we were just saying, well, look, you know, singles are, 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 are our domain and we choose what we do. And um, I mean, Tube Station nearly got dropped as a song altogether because uh, Paul didn't particularly think it was working when we were recording it. Um, so we were a little bit sort of anti-establishment in as much as that we'd go and do the opposite of what everybody else thought we should do. Um, and it turned out to be one of our, one of our greatest, um, greatest hits, if you like. I mentioned George Martin. Did you have any first-hand contact with John Lennon? I know that you guys played the Star Club in Germany. Didn't the Jam play the Star Club? Uh, Supposedly? Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. I think it, it was, but it wasn't the same sort of club. By the time we got there, it, 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 it had very much gone into a sort of uh, a, you know, a heavy rock or heavy metal type club. Um, you know, it, it, it didn't sort of carry that flag along with it all the time. I mean, it, it just evolved. You know, we found Germany at that time was very much more into the progressive rock and the, the heavy rock side of things. 
So we did find that particularly hard work, but yeah, we did we did do some work over there. How about with John Lennon or Paul McCartney? Did you have any contact with them? I still find it totally cool when I'm like reading NME and I see Paul McCartney referencing the jam, like just saying, and I really enjoyed the jam's version of Start, because it's like Taxman, you know, I'm kind of laughing about that and saying the word the jam. Did you have any dealings with any of the Beatles? Did John Lennon come to any gigs or did any rock and rollers offer to produce you? Like I was mentioning George Martin, did you have contact with any of the Beatles? No, not really. I mean, we did uh, we did bump into Paul McCartney. He popped his head in uh, at a studio in London that we were working at. He was also working there as doing something or other. You know, he, he, he but it was a bit of a fleeting thing. He just popped in, said hello, how you doing, blah blah blah. You know that sort of thing. And we've had quite a lot of people come to the shows. Who were, you know, uh, you know, I think Mick Jagger turned up at one of the New York shows to see us uh, uh, some time ago. Um, you know, I mean, even now, I think that, that, that there's. Uh, there's a certain sort of um, interest, you know, which is great to have, you know, sort of contemporaries. I mean, Clem Burke from Blondie was at one of the shows the other day. Um, he'd come down to see us in Los Angeles, you know. Um, so I think we, we, we still sort of um, uh, are appealing, if you like, to some of those people. Rick Buckler from, from the Jam playing tomorrow night in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada at Richards on Richards. Your first appearance in Vancouver in like 26 years. Mm. You're back, 26. Have you been to Vancouver since 1982 or have you been to Canada at all since 1982? I mean, I haven't, no. Um, I believe Bruce might have done when he was we was doing some touring with Stiff Little Fingers, but no, I haven't been here for, for uh, since then, no. Rick, when did you first see the Sex Pistols? When did you first see them? The first time I saw them was they were doing a warm-up gig. They'd just been signed by EMI, and um, they needed a, to, to, to do a, a quick show in a place called Dunstable in England. And we were pulled in at the last minute. We weren't signed to anybody at the time, and um, we went and saw them there. And I think there was only about a, a dozen people who turned up because they, they, they really hadn't hit the headlines at that time. So they were a fantastic band. I mean, despite what everybody might have said about them at the time, they really could play, and they were a really great band to go and see. And they were they were quite a big influence upon Paul. He had seen them and suddenly realised that, you know, this, here was a band that was playing to their own audience, playing their own music. Um, whereas for us, we'd always been doing a lot of covers, to, um, playing around the clubs, and and that sort of thing. So it was it was always a goal of ours to, to, to be in a situation like that where we could play to our own audiences in our own clubs. And there was a great live scene in London that was sort of burgeoning out, out at that time, which started off as the sort of pub rock scene, but then soon was taken over by uh, the punk new wave thing. Could have you played the 100 Club Punk Festival? Because looking at this book, Punk Diary, this amazing book called Punk Diary, I see you're doing gigs all around that time, but you weren't particularly on that, you know, the legendary, you know, Punk Club, 100 Club Festival. How come you guys weren't on that? Was it because you were too young, or were you just new to the scene then? Um, well, it's, it's strange. I mean, the, the punk thing was opened up a lot of a, a lot of doors on on the music industry um you know bands like um you know the stranglers and the police you wouldn't necessarily regard them as punk bands and they, they, those were the sort of bands that were around at that time i mean there was more bands that there were some bands that were very much hardcore punk you know like the damned uh, and the clash maybe and obviously the pistols and we were sort of um playing the similar sort of music, high energy music in the same sort of venues to the same people. So um, 
we really felt that, that although we were part of that movement, it wasn't necessarily that we were uh, strictly a punk band. We were, we were just maybe another facet of it. Um, if you see what I mean. It's well, continuation of the 60s punk sound, as started by like those great 60s mod freak beat bands like John's Children featuring Mark Bolan, that sort of thing. That's what I kind of view you guys as, the 60s punks sort of continuing on. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the punk thing actually came from New York, you know, the New York Dolls and, uh, you know, and it was uh, McLaren had uh, sort of seen that sort of scene happening in the States and, um, and, and, and could see no reason why um, it, it couldn't sort of, you know, look, there was, you know, things like the Velvet Underground and what have you. I mean, they weren't necessarily um, regarded as punks, but they were sort of outsiders to the sort of mainstream. And I think that was what um, we we sort of liked was the fact that we, we were we were doing this for ourselves, and we weren't doing this just to pamper to an audience that was already there. You know, we um, we were writing and playing for ourselves initially. Um, and not necessarily just trying to jump on any particular bandwagon. Rick Buckler from from the Jam. I mentioned John's children and Mark Bolin. You were on his TV show. That was pretty cool. Seeing that happen, doing all around the world. I saw some comments on that saying that perhaps Mark wasn't too thrilled to have you guys on. What was it like being on that show, doing all around the world? Uh, well, we. <laughs> it was great, actually. I mean. Um, the Mark Bolan thing, it, it, it was more like the glam rock, wasn't it? Um, that, from where he came from. Yes. Plus, he was just moving into television. He was, that was his first sort of foray into being a television presenter. As, um, so it was a bit odd. I don't know whether he didn't want us there or anything like that. You know, I mean, I think he was very much into, um, you know, anything that was, that, that, that was sort of musical. I mean, it, we might not have necessarily come from the same stable, but... Um, you know, I, I, I mean, I'm a big Mark Bowman fan. I think there were some great songs that he came up with there, and I think that's predominantly where we're at, is, is, is the songs and the energy. Um, at the very end of that performance, Rick, I think I see you losing your sticks, like you're drumming, and you lose your sticks, and it looks like that Bruce and Paul kind of give you some bad looks. They look kind of mad. Do you remember losing your sticks kind of at the end there? Yeah, I do. I mean, I mean, we were quite nervous, and and uh, they said, "Oh, don't worry. If anything goes wrong, we can do it again." You know, and of course, it was on the last bar or something when I'm doing some sort of roll or something, and and this and it, I, it just this, the stick decided to leave my hands, and of course, it was too late to catch and and what have you. And that was it because the song was over. And they said, oh, don't worry about it. Nobody will ever notice that. But there you are, like, you know, 20 or 25, 26 years later, still reminding me that uh, I'm a bit of a butterfinger sometimes, you know. Well, it was amazing drumming. I just kind of felt sorry for it because it looked like Bruce and Paul were kind of sneering at you. Do you, you still get the uh, harsh looks from Does Bruce give you any hard looks when he's looking at you playing his bass at all? No, no, no. And speaking of the rest of the band, we have Russell singing a lot of Paul Weller's parts, or most of Paul Weller's parts. How does that work out on all the songs? Is he singing all the parts of Paul Weller? Is Bruce joining in on some of that? Are you joining in? Uh, well, I mean, it's, um, you know, Russ does his own thing. He's, he was very much a jam fan. He knew exactly, uh, you know, what to do. He was on the same wavelength as us. I mean, he was... He works really hard at doing it. I mean, he's being his own man, really. He's not um, not not there just to emulate, um, you know, Paul's little mannerisms or, or whatever. Um, so it works really well, I think, on that front. 
how about for when the band's performing? Because looking at old footage of the jam, I see that Paul Weller's dad, John, comes out and introduces the band. Do you have any dad coming out to introduce from the jam at all? <laughs> no, we don't, no. No, we don't. I mean, that was something that, that was we always did. John always came out and introduced the band. Um, but no, we don't. Uh, we don't do it, don't do anything like that. No, no. The band, the boys. You were a big fan of the band, the boys, weren't you? Yeah, I like the boys. Yeah. Because I noticed on the All Mod Cons record on the back, there's a boys sticker on like one of Paul's guitars, and the boys are back in action again. Have you checked them out or kept in contact with the boys? Because they really are one of the unheralded great sort of first wave punk bands. Well, yeah, that's right. I mean. Um they, I mean, I, I always liked them, and we, we found ourselves touring with them, you know, or, or being on the same stage with them quite often. And, uh, yeah, they, we really really liked them. I mean, they they seem to have a lot of bad luck with the industry, you know, that, that they didn't get on too well with their record company and stuff. And it's a real shame that they that they didn't sort of carry on. I mean, I didn't realise they were all back together again. Um, I, I, last I'd heard, they'd all sort of got themselves... I suppose what you call normal jobs and were settling down and what have you. But it's, uh, yeah, if they're back out on the road again, I think that's great. They're back on the road, and of course they have that legendary song called the Backstage Pass, talking about touring with the jam, where it says, everyone gets laid, even Paul's dad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've got quite a lot of fond memories of, of you know, playing with them. So, I mean, I, I suppose that that's great that they're sort of referring back to... Uh, to their sort of experiences there. Rick Buckler from From the Jam. Bruce did a lot of time, tons of time, in the Stiff Little Fingers, who actually ended up covering the message by Grandmaster Flash, the legendary rap song, The Message. Are you guys doing any rapping from the jam at all? <laughs> no, no. I mean, I'm not saying that that's not a possibility, but it's, it's, it's nothing that we've got actually on the radar at the moment, no. We are going to turn our attention to, to some new material as soon as we uh, get the opportunity, we've, we, I think we've managed to put two months aside coming up sometime this year to sort of concentrate on that sort of thing. So how that will turn out, we really don't know, or what we will do, is, um, we're not really sure yet. But I mean, we, we've got some ideas and we'd like to sort of sit down and routine some things. Because um, obviously that's, that's another avenue that, that's opened up for us, is, is, is to, to you know, see what else, where we can take it from here. Rick, as the jam were playing, when did you first notice the mod revival happening? Like, you started way before, and then the mod revival kind of kicked in. When did you first notice it happening? Because I noticed that you played, speaking of the word notice, drums with the Merton Parkas on a few gigs, and they were like a great mod revival band. I, I know, I think that's a bit of misinformation. I didn't uh, didn't ever play with the Merton Parkas, not, oh. not even actually play with them. No. Oh, sorry about that. No, that's all right. That's, there's, there's a lot of things that could get uh, put about, you know, that, 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 that didn't actually happen, you know. But you I mean, did play with, did you play with Big Country, though? No. You never played with Big Country? The only thing I ever did with Big Country was when um, Stuart Adamson was putting the band together initially um, with Bruce Watson, they didn't have a rhythm section. Um, so I did go into the studio and, and, and uh, just play along to about three or four songs which they then took off to a record company to try and get a deal. Uh, and then once they secured that deal, um, it was, it was just, just trying to help them out, really. I wasn't really sort of part of the band or anything, and I didn't, I didn't do any gigs with them. But, um, um, you know, Mark Brzezicki uh, is a fantastic drummer. I mean, we, we did a tour with, um, I think, probably one of their first tours 
but they did, they were supporting the jam. So uh, I sort of, um, I suppose, I broke up, a, you know, um, and, uh, became quite quite friendly with Mark Brzezicki and, um, you know, because I, I admire the way that he plays. It's entirely different from, from my sort of style, but I could appreciate that he's, you know, he's, he's a great drummer. Rick Buckler from, from the Jam, winding up here. You're coming to Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada tomorrow night to Richards and Richards. I mentioned this a second ago, the Mod Revival bands. You have Russell and Dave in from the Jam as well, as well as Bruce Foxton. Were they ever in any Mod Revival bands? Did they check out any of those bands? And I guess that's kind of what I was wondering about, what you thought about some of those bands, like the Squire, like the Merton Parkas, or the Secret Affair, or the Teen Beats, or the Purple Hearts. Were Russell and Dave in any of those bands or attending those gigs? I know they were attending some jam gigs were already down with that scene. What did you think of that sort of mod revival scene? Were you connected with any of those bands? Um, well, the, the, yeah, the, the New Hearts, um, obviously, they supported us. I mean, I think that, that we... Um, and they ended up into Secret Affair, right? Uh, yeah, that was, that's right. There was Secret Affair. And I think that the, the, the whole, th whole of that really sort of uh, stemmed from the fact that you could still do high energy music and not actually call yourself punk, but if you were more influenced by the the fashion and the you know um, you know what vehicles you wore, what vehicles you, you you drove around in, whether it was scooters or whatever, and the clothes that you wore and the places you went to, I think that those sort of bands realised that punk wasn't the only new thing that was on the block, and um, and uh, so maybe that that was why those those sort of bands actually sort of appeared. Were Russell or Dave involved in any of those bands at all, or were they at those gigs? Um, I don't know. I don't, they, I don't think they were actually involved in any of those bands. I mean, um, their, um, their, their musical background was, 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 was different. I mean, they, they, they had their own band. They, yeah. And Russell was actually at the very last jam gig, wasn't he? Yes, he was. Yeah, he used to come to a lot of the shows, so he was a big jam fan from the out anyway. I noticed also there was other bands like The Graduate who turned into Tears for Fears. Their take on, quote, mod revival seemed to be a bit sad. It wasn't really cool. It's almost like a bandwagon sort of jumping thing. Do you remember The Graduate who turned into Tears for Fears? I don't remember um, that too well, no. I mean... Um... And I think before The Alarm became The Alarm, they were a band called Seventeen. A lot of these bands kind of took some of the influences and then switched it around and then had a huge hit. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the great thing about that is that the, 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 the whole thing, it started to evolve as time went on. You know, it grew from from a sort of pub rock thing into the punk thing, into the new wave scene, and then people started to establish their own careers. I mean, the police and the stranglers, um, uh, etc., were all from that era, and yet they all uh, made their own mark initially, you know, eventually. And, um, you know, um, I think the whole thing just sort of started to evolve. So, I mean, I, I think that's great that, that, that you, don't, you don't sort of get stuck anywhere, that you actually, you know, you do try and move on as much as possible. Rick Buckler from From the Jam, I saw a picture, and I hope this is true and not misinformation, of a woman with a tattoo of your face on her back. Yes. Is that true? That is, that's right, yes. She, um, she, she had a tattoo of Paul done first, and then she, she contacted me because she wanted a photograph of myself, and I thought, well, you know, why? <laughs> uh, and I soon found out why, because she then showed me 
um, the tattoo <laughs> that she had on her back of me, do you know what I mean? And then I think she's going to get Bruce tattooed on there as well. I mean, I think she's old enough to, you know, this is this is not some teenager doing this. This is uh, she's this is a grown woman doing this. I mean, I. I don't know whether I could I could get myself to have a tattoo of anybody put on on my back, but I mean, uh, I don't know. That's that's it's a bit weird that. I, but in a way, that's the way that she wants to express herself as as a fan. So fair enough. Well, in the photo, you're smiling ear to ear, so it's bringing lots of joy to yourself, and you're bringing lots of joy to Vancouver by coming up here with From the Jam. And lastly, more of a surprise than, than, than joy. I don't, know, I don't know how joyful I was to see my face on the back of somebody, I don't know, but it was certainly a surprise. And lastly here, Rick Buckler from From the Jam, did you ever hang out at all with Topper Hedden, Topper Hedden from The Clash? Uh, yeah, we did, we, we did for a while because, um, you know, when we we did a gig in Soho Market, they, they came along and saw us, and, you know, that, this is long before either of us got signed. Um, and we did do a short uh, short tour with, with The Clash, um, which, um, so, yeah, we sort of, we're, we're, our paths were crossing here and there, yeah, for sure. How about in later years? And the reason I mention this is a friend of mine, he was born in Dover, and his headmaster was Topper Heaton's dad. And my friend's dad, when he returns back to Dover, often hangs out in Topper's around. And my friend's dad has often said to my friend, oh, you should come over to Topper's house and jam. Like, Topper's just hanging out there, ready to jam, having a good time. Does that similar parallel to what you've been doing these past couple of years or past years before you started playing drums, drums, Rick? Could somebody, like, knock on your, did anybody knock on your door saying, hey, let's jam? No, not really. Let's jam with the jam, I guess. No, no, no. Um, no, no, that, that that didn't really happen a great deal. I mean, obviously, we, you know, you come across other people in other bands and you make friends with them and etc. etc. But I mean, most of the time, it was very difficult to keep in touch with some of these people because they were, you know, they were always out on the road touring in different towns in different different countries, and so were we. So um, it was it's great to sort of catch up with these people when you can, but um, very difficult. Did you ever get to do any drum circles with Keith Moon at all? Any of like your idols or other people involved in the 60s scene? Did you ever meet Keith Moon at all? No, no, unfortunately not. I mean, he um, he he died, um, you know, long before I could sort of, you know, get. And, you know, I mean, he was he was obviously a big influence on us, but uh, I mean, that was a that was a um, the sort of generation before us. So. It, uh, what I find is interesting is the generation before you is kind of honoring you because I see that the Manfred Mann cover going underground. Oh, really? I didn't know about that. Yeah, the Manfred Mann covering going underground and Morrissey covers that's entertainment. Yeah, I mean, there's been a, there's been quite a few bands who have done covers of, uh, of jam numbers. I mean, I, I, I even think McFly had done, um, I think it was Pretty Green or something. But, uh, you know, I mean, that's, that's great that, in as much as that they obviously feel that they like the song and they want to, you know, much the same that, that we would look at the Kinks and say, well, we want to do one of your songs, you know, and we would do, we would do David Watts from the Kinks or we would cover one of the Who numbers or something, you know. Like you will be tomorrow night at Richards and Richards in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Will you maybe be hauling out the David Watts there for the fans to hear? Yeah, we'll probably be doing David Watts and we'll probably be doing um, So Sad About Us, which was a Who number. Um, How about In the Streets, or In the Streets Today? I uh, don't think we'll be doing that one. Um, it's, 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 a, it's a bit of a dilemma for us, because there is so much to choose from. 
but it's 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 almost like which numbers do we leave out rather than which ones do we put in um, because there's so much to choose from and there's uh, and also being able to sort of look back and say well uh, I, you know, some of the lesser-known tracks, you know, like Life from a Window from the Modern World album, didn't really get played a great deal. And obviously, a lot of the tracks from the last album, The Gift, um, didn't get didn't get aired too much at the time because it was soon after that that, 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 that you know the band split up. So um, it's nice to be able to sort of revisit them and maybe do them more justice than than we could do at the time. Have you had any feedback at all? Lastly, lastly, here Rick Buckler from from the Jam from the Weller camp, like any of his daughters or sons or family or anything like that, or best friends that have come to see you guys, or have you heard any word back from the Weller camp or even as even not really him, but just people that are so with them, like the guys from Oasis, if they come and check you out, that sort of thing. Um, no, we haven't. You know, it's, just, it's a shame, really. We haven't really had much in the way from, um, you know, from Paul. Um, you know, uh, which you know, not even a sort of good luck. I'm not. I'm not. I know I'm not involved with good luck or anything like that. There was nothing like that. I mean, Paul pretty much cut off all communications with myself and Bruce. Um, pretty much straight away after 1982. Um, he seems to be opening up a little bit more these days. Uh, he's spoken to Bruce um, a couple of times, I think. So maybe he's, uh, you know, he. He's, he's he's now trying to sort of come you know make you know get back in in touch with us you know which is it's because he's always been a bit of a a, a a bit of a shame I think that that, that that he cut off the communications um, you know so severely that we, that we didn't stay in touch you know I mean, myself and Bruce have always stayed in touch with each other over the years in some way or another and it's, it just seems a real shame that Paul didn't feel the necessity to, uh, to do likewise. Well, it's great you're able to bring from the jam to Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. We really appreciate you making your way up to Vancouver after all these years here, Rick Buckler from, from the jam. And in, in, in the intervening years, you've been doing stuff with antique furniture restoration. Have you been out to any antique shops at all? Have you seen any good antiques when you've been on tour now? This is a great time to pick out antiques going to America. Uh, well, yeah, I'd like to, but I mean, it's... Um... Do you have a job to that's right. I do. I do have a job to do, and I, uh, I, I, you know, if I see something I like, I, I know I can't fit it in the suitcase, so I, I, I just can't go there, you know. And then, um, some of the other, the other guys in the band are not necessarily that interested in antiques, so I try and not to bore them too much by talking about it. You know. Well, just out of curiosity, what were some of the more interesting antiques that you have analysed over the years or restored? Was it like total, like really old Victorian stuff? Anything associated with Queen Victoria, or what sort of neat sort of stuff? Was there any musical instruments? or stuff with interesting history associated with it? Um, well, most antiques have an interesting history as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I, I, it's a lot of the Georgian furniture, the uh, sort of Regency things from from um, the 1820s uh, right through. Um, you get less and less. I mean, obviously, the pieces become rarer and rarer as you go further back in time. But, I mean, sometimes it's a real honour to, 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 uh, to work on something uh, when you can see that it's obviously made by a real craftsman, probably by somebody who couldn't even read or write, um, you know, to, to you know to work on some of that furniture, it's so beautifully made and with such beautiful materials. Um, that, that that's really where it's at. I mean, it's, and, and the, the, the craftsmanship that goes into it, and the, and the time and effort, which is uh, it's it's very difficult to find people to be able to do that these days. It's um, a lot of. You know, furniture is not really meant to be kept for for two, three hundred years these days. It seems like if it lasts longer than five years, you're on, you, you know, you've got your money's worth. Well, it sounds, Rick, like you've perfectly described from the jam.
Well, thank you very much. A fine craftsmanship all these years later, still rocking to Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And anything else you want to add to the people out there at Ulrich? Well, you know, come along and check us out. If you, if you, if, whether you're an original fan or whether you've discovered the band uh, in recent years, you know, uh, I think now's your opportunity. This is the closest anybody's going to get to uh, seeing uh, a jam, you know, a reunion. So, yeah, come and check it out. What do you think people should care about from, from the jam? Why should people care about from the jam? Um, it's it's just it's down to the music and it's down to the energy and the way that we you know I suppose that we play. I mean we've always been a predominantly a live band, um, and, and that's really where our passion is, I suppose. So yeah, that's that's worth um, you know. I think there's a, there's a great connection between us and and, and uh, you know jam fans in as much as that they belong to us and um, uh, you know and, and vice versa. There's also fans, though, of some of your other combos, like Time UK. A friend of mine plays in the bands at Transmitters from Vancouver, and he loves your work in the Time UK. Will you be doing any Time UK numbers? We won't be, no, no, not, not, not at the moment. Um, I mean, most of the people that I worked with in Time UK, there was Danny Custo from Tom Robinson Band, and there was uh, we had a great bass player called Nick South, and I mean, I think he now lives in Los Angeles somewhere. Um, and I'm hoping to sort of catch up with uh, 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 Fletch, who was, uh, you know, Fletcher Christian, who was the one of the guitarists. He now lives in New York. So they all seem to have sort of emigrated out here. So I'm, I'm, it's great if I can get back in touch with uh, some of those guys. Well, thanks so much, Rick, from from the jam. Keep on rocking in the free world and do-do-do-do-do. <laughs> right, okay. Almost, Rick. Do-do-do-do-do. Ba-ba. <laughs> Is that what you want? <laughs>
you wanna do I had a place that you wanna go For me permission for everything that you want And it tastes that you're feeling right We're any close, this is not music right See what you want, cause this is a new high school Do what you want if it takes your mind Better do it now, cause you won't have time And never worry if people laugh at you The fools only laugh cause they're every And then the hands are fast You must remember they don't always last It's up to us to make sure they understand Who makes the rules and make people select Who is the judge that your ways are correct The media is washed on these absolute shit The TV telling y'all what to think Everything that you want to do And in a place that you want to go Don't need permission for everything that you want And I think that your feelings right We're really close, this is not as right So what you want, cause this is a new high school So what you want, cause this is a new high school